0: Let me start reading 2 Kings, chapter 6, verse 24, about famine in besieged Samaria. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, "Help me, my lord the king." The king replied, "If the Lord does not help you, where can I help from, for you? Where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press?" Then he asked her, "What's the matter?" She answered, "This woman came to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son." So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked, and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. He said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. The king said, This disaster is from the Lord." Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour was sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, how could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha. But you will not eat any of it.
1: Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance to, of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the, du- in, in the, in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left their camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some of the things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp, and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking that they will surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get, get into the city.' One of his officers answered, "Make some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like one of, will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all of these Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them to find out what happened." So they selected two chariots with their horses, and their king and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, "Go and find out what has happened." They followed them as far as the Jordan, and they found the whole road strewn with clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seer of the finest flour sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Now the king had put an officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate and the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died, just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happens. In The people trampled him in the gateway, and he died.
0: Thank you, James. I'd like to invite uh, Phil up, who's going to be sharing about what this passage means. Let me pray for him as he comes up. Father God, we thank you for this time when we get to hear directly from your word through Phil. We thank you for the preparation that he's put into Uh, This morning, and we pray that our hearts and our minds will be receptive to hear from you, and be uh, emboldened to put it into action. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, great. We're in Two Kings again.
2: If you could have that open in in your Bibles in front of you, we're going to follow it through now. Um, It's it's uh, it's a a step on from the story we saw last week. That time has moved on. So the story that we saw last week was where there was just a little bit of banter going on between Israel and Aram, there were a bit of raiding parties going on, a bit, a bit of sort of international um, shenanigans, but now they're properly at war and things are not going well for Israel. The king of Israel has got his whole army together. It's unstoppable. The only way that the Israelites can actually uh, prevent a wholesale destruction of their country is to, um, uh, to, to, to hide in their cities. So you get this scenario of a siege warfare. It's not pleasant. And it's awful, in fact. Now, the wider context is this. We have to remember the people of Israel were still in a covenant relationship with God. A, 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 a relationship of promise. That's what covenant relationship means. And, and it, even though the, 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 the nation of Israel had split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and we're looking at the northern kingdom now, God was still committed to caring for his people because he'd promised to. That's what we mean by a covenant relationship. And it was still in force. That promise. For God's, God's remaining faithfulness on his people was still there. You just have to read through Deuteronomy 28 to 30, and you'll find what that covenant was based on. It was based on them, the people of Israel, listening to God's word and obeying it wholeheartedly. But God also says, I'm committed, so committed to you that I will draw you back, even if it means my hand of discipline being upon you. If they wandered away from him, he promised his commitment still to them. And he does that discipline by sending warnings through famine or war and other, natu- uh, other national disasters. And he allows his people to suffer in order to shake them out of their stupor. They're, they're kind of, I, I don't know what I'm doing wandering away from God, but I'm going to. That's what he's shaking them out of. And as you follow the history of Israel through these first seven chapters of two kings, as we've been doing, it's clear to see that God's hand of discipline was on Israel. Through war and through famine, through spiritual decline, through a growing idolatry in the nation, God is saying, wake up, Israel, wake up. And the further they they wander away from God, the louder his voice through these disasters is. And isn't it a measure of our God that his discipline is not about revenge? It's about drawing us to himself, drawing his people to himself, shaking them out of their spiritual stupor and helping them realize the grace and love of God. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. His discipline is always about Showing his people the way back into relationship with him. Showing them the need for true repentance. Offering them salvation and warning them of judgment. And those are the three things we're going to look at through this passage this morning. God's offer of salvation, but also his desire for true repentance and his warning of judgment. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is this. Repent. Sincerely, That's what our passage teaches us this morning. Repentance must be sincere. So the writer spares us no details with how desperate the siege war had become. Look at verse 26 with me. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, Help me, my lord the king. The king replied, well, If the lord does not help you, where can I get help from? Uh, where, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? He's a bit sarcastic, isn't he? Just kind of going, Well, I'm helpless. Who are you looking to? For me, if God's not going to help, who's going to help? What's the matter, he says. She answered, well, this woman said to me, give up your son so we may eat him today. And tomorrow we eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him, but she has hidden him. Now listen, this is the point of what the writer is trying to help us see. That law and order and morality had failed them so totally that the only thing they're thinking about is food. Things were so desperate that the issue between the women is not the horrors of cannibalism, but the issue of fairness. How awful is that? And the king is distraught to hear it. We're told he he tears his robes, which is something you did at the time to express deep grief, deep horror or deep anger or fear, and he does it in public. Look at verse 30. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes, and, he, and as he went along the wall, the, the, the people looked, and they saw that under his robes, he had sackcloth on his body. As he tears his robes, they see that underneath He's wearing this sackcloth. It's a, a kind of itchy material. It, it's a, the it's a lowest of low materials. It's a material that you would uh, uh, make uh, garments of and wear in order, um, in order to show God that you are the lowest of the low and your heart is repenting towards God. That's what the whole sackcloth thing is all about. It's a sign to God that I am not my own. I am simply at the mercy of the king. And if God would look at me and see my heart being reflected by my clothes, then may he see that I truly repent. That's the whole idea of sackcloth. That's what people would do in those days. If they wanted to show true repentance, you'd wear sackcloth. And it's a good thing. It's a right thing. Because always God always invites his people to repent when they're under discipline. And it seems like the king is in the right place spiritually. But then he opens his mouth. And he reveals exactly the opposite. He said in verse 31, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. In other words, his actions say he's repenting, but in his heart he's blaming God for all the suffering. Essentially what he's saying is is this, this charade is not working. This whole sackcloth tool that I've been given culturally is just a sham. It's not working. We're still dying. People are eating their babies. It's an absolute outrage and it's God's fault. Look at verse 33. The king said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? It's a sham. Do you see the sham? The, the, the sackcloth is just a, a tool. He's just doing it to try and get out of it. it, it, it I'm, I'm, safely, I'm going to safely assume that we've always been in the place where we've offered a, a false apology. I remember many times falling out with my sisters and my dad saying to me, now Philip, that was my naughty name, you need to say sorry to your sister and, and I would say sorry. Oh, with beautiful, beautiful uh, cherubic sincerity. Uh, just because I wanted to get out of any further issue with punishment. I I said what my dad needed to hear, but I didn't have an ounce of remorse in my heart. We've all been in that place, haven't we? Uh, Offering a hollow and meaningless repentance just to get out of punishment, just to stop the suffering. And the writer wants us to see that the King of Israel is simply in that place. He's doing the sackcloth. Oh, and and, do you know, it's interesting because he's doing it uh, under his clothes, so he's trying to do it rightly without an, an open show of it. But it's still a tool to stop the suffering. Why? Because when he opens his mouth, his words betray the condition of his heart. Inside him, nothing has changed. He blames God for their circumstances, not himself. Isn't that interesting? And that's why he sends a messenger to kill Elisha. And it dramatically, Elisha bars the doors to the messenger until the king comes to him. And then as the king arrives, he says this. This is beautiful. Hear the word of the Lord. We've heard the word of the king. It's a hollow and, and meaningless repentance. But here's the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says about the tith time tomorrow. A seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, salvation is coming. Hear the word of the Lord. If all the king can declare is, I want God out of my life, well, the Lord will declare, I've saved my people. And even in spite of it, this is, this is just... This is just dreadful, even in spite of it. You've got the king's right-hand man right there, and he's listening to God declare salvation for the people, and yet this is what he says in verse 2 of chapter 7. Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The people whom the king is absolutely leaning on for advice and wisdom have just basically said, that is a lie, I don't believe God. He's dismissed even God's deliverance. That is how hard-hearted the king of Israel and his associates were. It's a toxic mix. Where do you find repentance in Israel? Well, there is none, is there? Where do you find acceptance for guilt? No, you don't find it in Israel. You don't find it with the king. He blames God. Where do you find an acceptance, a a welcome of God's glorious word? Well, it's not in Israel, is it? Because why? It's rejected. And that picture of a helpless king blaming God, justifying himself and dismissing God's word stands as a warning for all of us. And it's relevant for our times. I realize none of us can relate to the horrors of this siege warfare, but many of us have gone through the hardest years of our lives in the last 18 months, haven't we? So as we look at how the King of Israel responds to discipline, it might be a good time for us to to take a step back and ask ourselves, where are we spiritually in these unprecedented times of suffering? Where are we spiritually? Today, as we hear his voice... As we struggle in these days wondering whether what is going, or whether what we are going through is the consequence of life in a decaying sinful world or, or God's hand of discipline on us, the bottom line is that through it all God is speaking. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. God's discipline and our suffering is all about showing His people how much we need Him. It's about drawing us to himself, not punishing us for rebellion. And it shows how far we've wandered from God when we mistake God's discipline for mindless punishment, like the King of Israel does in his passage. It shows how far we've wandered from God when we think we can deceive God with good deeds and fake repentance. In order to stop this suffering, it shows how far we've wandered from God when we blame Him rather than cry out to Him for comfort and fellowship in difficult times. And if you're if you're in that if you're in that place, if you're struggling with the circumstances of life, some of us are really struggling with mental health. I understand that, I really do. And, and I'm not going to promise it will go away quickly, but I do promise this that to hold your hand out to God and say, please take it, please take my hand and comfort me and guide me in these difficult times, God will do that. Because of who God is, he welcomes, he welcomes us into his arms as we seek to draw near to him. And we do that through prayer. If you don't know what to pray, can I just encourage you, open the psalms. I was doing that with my family last night, Psalm 62, Psalm 63. They're beautiful psalms of prayer to God. And they teach us what to say if we don't know what to say. They teach us how to draw near to God when we don't know how to draw near to God, when our hearts are so struggling that we don't know what to say. Those are the words to say. And God teaches us this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way of drawing near to him by simply echoing the words that he's given us through the Psalms. Will you do that this morning? If you're struggling, if you're struggling how to repent, if you're struggling with this issue of blaming God for your suffering, will turn to God and use his words. Why, because our God is beautiful. Let me read to you from Isaiah 42, one to three. This is what our God is like. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he's not going to break. That's how you feel. God's not going to break you if you hold your hand out to him and say, Lord Jesus Christ, please take my hand. I need you a smoldering wick, if you feel like that that, that, that pitiful picture of a blown-out candle and the wick just puffing smoke slowly till it extinguishes, if you feel like that is your soul this morning, he's not going to snuff you out. He's going to hold your hand and take you. One of the greatest sadnesses of this passage is that the king has so wandered away from God that he's forgotten who his God is. He's forgotten what his God is like. He doesn't learn the beautiful rhythms of grace and the comforting hand of God in difficult times. Instead, he sits on the outside of God, judging God, hating God, rejecting his word and rejecting his love. And the picture is there simply to help us see that's not how you do repentance. Because God invites us. He loves us. And he says, draw near to me. Draw near to me in these times when we wander from God he says, "Repent, uh, repent in the opposite way to the king. Accept his word uh, properly. Repent in your heart and draw near to God. That's our first point: repent sincerely. The second thing is receive God's salvation. It's ah, oh, the second part of this passage is just utterly gold dust." And can I encourage you after this morning, I'm not going to do it justice. Read it for yourself. Revel in the story again. And just let your heart sing with joy. Let me just go through it, though. Whereas the opening sequence focuses on the king. He's the highest of the high status in the country. The next sequence fo- focus on, focuses on the lowest of the low, the lepers outside the city of Samaria. They know they're going to die. There's, you know, Damned if you do, damned if you don't, basically. If I go to the city, I'm going to starve to death. If I go to the Arameans, they're going to kill me. I'm, you know, what do I do? So they go to the Arameans. And then we're told in chapter 7, verse 5. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there, for the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So the Arameans got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. So these lepers, walking to the camp, find it, deserted and they help themselves, totally. They have so much time, they help themselves, gather together a bunch of silver and gold, go and bury it somewhere and come back to try and do it again. But in the middle of their joy, they suddenly realise they've got a shed load to spare. And they suddenly realise the people in Samaria who were starving whilst they were feasting. And out of compassion, they take the good news to the lost people of Samaria. What a stunning picture of grace. You see, those lepers had compassion for the people of the city who had rejected them. Isn't it stunning? Those lepers had been treated like Dogs. They were so disgusting they weren't even allowed into the city walls with the rest of the people of Samaria. They were so disgusting that the Arameans left them alone because they weren't worth killing. And they could have just sat there amongst the plunder, living like kings. But they're keenly aware that their feast is a gift from God and therefore it's for everyone. So they take the good news to the to the people of Samaria, and then the, you know, kind of you can imagine the, the news being passed from messenger to messenger up the way through through the ranks to the guards guards at the door of the king's room, and he gets up and scratches his back a bit a bit cranky, and and he looks out, and he goes, "Yeah, I know. Sorry, everyone, go back to bed. It's a sham." He thinks it's safer to die behind the walls that he has built than to throw himself into the loving arms of God. That's how blind he is to God's salvation. Isn't it phenomenal? And in a way God God's, God, God works through these, and, sorry, and in the way that God works through these lepers, there is an echo here, a kind of foreshadowing picture that points to how the good news of God's salvation goes to lost sinners even today. You see, when Christ came from God, it was the prostitutes and the tax collectors who flocked to him. They were the outcasts, they were the unclean of their society, and they flocked to Jesus because they realized their true, true situation before God just like those lepers did. They were condemned to die, they, you know, they, they knew that, 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 that society rejected them, they believed that God rejected them. But as they gathered around Jesus Christ, God the Son, and heard him teach about the kingdom of God and God's love for them, they believed him. Why? Because God had come in the person of Jesus and offered the riches of eternity through the forgiveness of sin. It was like they had stumbled upon the most amazing great hoard of treasure that God's saving hand had given to them, just like those lepers. It's one of the greatest pictures in the Bible of the truth that salvation has always been for those who believe they can lose nothing but gain everything, for those who understand that they are the lowest of the low, for those who understand that they have nothing they can earn, nothing they can, they, they can win from God, and yet God gives and gives and gives. And I want you to understand also that, that God deliberately disconnects salvation from status or works. Did you notice that? The minute that the the king kind of reveals his his hypocrisy in what he says, that's when God speaks. So there's no sense in which the king of Israel can go, ah, my little charade with the whole sackcloth thing actually worked. God um, gave me salvation. No, it was never earned. It was always given. And it's also not about status. I love it. That actually salvation goes to the lowest of the low, not to the king of Samaria. And that's what grace is about. If you want to understand God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, you must understand you cannot earn it, neither can your status win it. We must come like those lepers to God absolutely with nothing to give but everything to gain. And do you know what, I, I, the, the other thing for, for Christians here this morning, do you know, I love God's timing. I, I promise you, I, I didn't sit down um, with a schedule of um, who's, who the offering's going to be for and what the passage is going to be about and wangle it so that this passage marries with uh, just the week that we are, um, we're giving money to London City Mission. But this is God's timing. And therefore, I'm going to say it, thus saith the Lord. This is the weight of God's word upon us who believe and trust in him. Why? Because they show us afresh what it is to be one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Just on the week where our offering is to London City Mission, where genuinely we support the work of those who tell people about Jesus. The good news of Jesus is not simply join our club, is it? It's not, here's another way to to improve your life, but like these lepers, it's good news. You can't win it, your status won't earn it. God has saved us by His hand and no other. God has given us His Son, and by believing and trusting in His Son, that's how we have a relationship with God. And as beggars first to the feast, therefore our responsibility is to tell others about the feast before them. And the message of Jesus is going to sound nuts. Like those lepers taking the news to the people of Samaria. It's going to sound silly. But our message today has not changed for 2,000 years. We believe a first-century penniless carpenter who died a criminal's death on the cross and rose again three days later is God. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that by trusting in Him and Him alone, you will have eternal life, your sins will be forgiven, and you will enjoy a relationship with God like you will never, ever, ever understand without Him? That's God's invitation to the feast, it's a spiritual feast. It's a relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't believe it this morning, will you listen to the word of God? Those lepers joined the feast, will you like them join the feast? And for Christians this morning, let's allow this incredible story of these nameless lepers encourage us today. Because as we're getting to our feet after 18 months, dominated by a pandemic, well, let's look at these guys and see our primary role in this world. Let's meditate on this wonderful picture of Christ calling us to his Feast of Spiritual Riches. And let's remember our privilege is to feast and feast and feast on them. We do that by prayer and we do that by reading God's word. But oh my goodness, let's also take their, 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 their picture and their joy as our role models and take the good news to our families, to our friends, to those who don't know Jesus and tell them about God's salvation that has come to us. Do you know the last point? of this passage is don't be surprised at God's judgment in the last section of our passage the king of Israel sends out a scouting party that confirms what the lepers had said and and God's people were saved just as God had promised and then we get this curious little footnote at the end of the story from verses 17 to 20 I'll read those to you now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate and the people trampled him in the gateway and he died just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, well, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that's exactly what happened to him. For the, people trampled, for the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. It crops up again and again and again. I've, I've tried to emphasize it. Verse 18 summarizes it. This is the obvious, obvious point. It happened as the man of God had said to the king. Now, if you follow through the last seven chapters of 2 Kings, read them again. This comes up again and again and again. It happened according to the word of the Lord. And the invitation, oh sorry, the the point is this. The word of God is powerful. What God says will come true. If God's word has said, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven of your sins, it's going to happen. If God's word has said that one day if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will rise from the dead as Christ has risen from the dead, it will happen. Because God's word has said it happens and God's word is powerful. And it's the point of these three verses. It ran home again and again and again. Verse 17, and he died just as the man of God had foretold. Verse 18, it happened as the man of God had said to the king. Verse 20, and that's exactly what happened to him. And he died. What God's word says is what God's word does. And when we step back, ultimately see, we see that the word of the Lord both saves and judges in this passage. And the question is whether we trust in it And share it like those lepers who are saved, or whether we dismiss it and reject it like the king's right hand man and face judgment. That's the choice our passage presents us this morning. We accept it and are saved, or reject it and are judged. And I said, at the beginning of this pa- I said at the beginning, this passage is about God's gracious warning to us when we wander away from him. It's a challenge, isn't it, to examine our hearts. I love it when the Bible does that. Just say, it just says, take, just take a step back from life. Look at where you are spiritually. What is happening in your quiet times? What's happening with your, your, your attitude to, to meeting with God's people, your attitude to the prayer meeting? What's going on there? And and, and God's word opens our eyes to the wonder of God's salvation. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get to that point where I hear the good news of Jesus once again. I just feel a bit stale about it. Oh no, another evangelistic sermon. And do you know what? It's so wrong. And I have to go to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. Because the good news of Jesus is, oh, oh, it just, yeah. Inexplicably wonderful, isn't it? And I have to say, Lord God, give me that renewed, renewed vision of Jesus. And that makes me revel in his love. That makes me, oh, just wonder at the work that he's done to save me. And that's what this passage does. It, it, it just, it's just a new, new, fresh angle that God's salvation is at his hands. You know, for each of us, we're going to be challenged on different levels and in different ways. But just remember this founding truth that God is love. And by his grace, he's calling us into a deeper and deeper relationship with him. Will we take a step back and and ask ourselves, is that my direction right now? And this morning, will we take the invitation to the feast? The feast of spiritual riches found in Christ. And will we take that humbling picture of those joyful lepers? I'm going to take the news to the lost and follow them. And, And let me just say, if you don't know what to do this morning, it might be that... Just, you you have no idea. You don't know whether to accept what God has said in this passage or not. Then can I say start somewhere? It might be that you've been struggling spiritually for weeks and weeks and years and years. Well, tomorrow Christianity Explored starts. Come and join us. We go through the book of Mark. It's just... A first century biography of Jesus. And we can read about him. We can get to know him. We get to listen to him. And he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So will you start there by looking at him? Please come and see me after the service or... or Or we've put some some flyers on, on your seat. Take one of those. Just email the church office. Come along tomorrow evening at 7.30. There's a great meal. And let's start chatting about Jesus. Will you do that? If you're struggling spiritually, will you do that? Will you take that first step that this passage invites us into? A step of spiritual renewal to examine what repentance is really like, A step of spiritual salvation to enter into the salvation that God has offered. But also a warning. Not to do nothing because God's word is powerful and rich and wonderful and we bow to it this morning. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we worship you this morning for being the ultimate revelation of God, the true Word of God. We thank you that what you have said about salvation is true. What you have said about being the servant of all is true. What you have said about salvation is true. And we ask, Lord God, that as we've read about repentance and read about salvation and read about your word being powerful to both save and judge. Father God, may we see the logic of this passage and enter into your salvation and examine our hearts to find that place where we truly repent and run to you and not from you. Lord God, this morning may we revel in your word. May we rejoice in your salvation. May we wonder at your compassion for the lost. In the name of Jesus. Amen.